Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we've got a great show lined up for you. It comes to us from a f- place in Indian country that we focused on before throughout the course of this year. We're going back to Alaska, this time for a show that we're recording in December of 2015. My guest joining us today is uh, someone who, if you know anything about Alaskan tribal health issues, you probably know her. Her name is Rosemary Atungarok. Rosemary, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. I appreciate the chance to be able to communicate with some of the places where we share birds that come to the Arctic for renewal and travel back to your lands and waters. Rosemary, you've been very gracious to me since the time we met in Chicago at the American Public Health Association meetings in uh, October or November of 2015. But I know I'm not completely pronouncing your name perfectly right, so just do that justice for us and tell a little bit about your background. Well, my name is Rosemary Tomarok. I started as a community health aide in the small village of Milksit. In our villages, we don't have physicians. Our community health aides are our first line of care. Our health aides provide uh, care from preconception through end of life, and uh, we work with the community health aide manual, and we're taught a physical exam, and we're the hands, eyes, and ears of the physician, in our case, through Samuel Simmons Memorial Hospital. But I also have been a community leader, a tribal leader, a council member, uh, the mayor, involved in uh, federal subsistence advisory boards, many different things, um, currently engaged with the National Tribal Environmental Thinking. Well, this was the context in which we met. We were at a professional meeting together dealing with environmental health issues in uh, Indian country, and you have been involved with this uh, think tank dealing with environmental health issues. Tell us a little bit about what the think tank is and how you got involved. Uh, I've been engaged with the Centers for Disease Control for a number of years. They came to us to talk about fish contaminants, but the reality is when you talk to us about fish contaminants, you really need to know how we use our fish, the narrow time windows that we may be consuming these fish, but also how we share the various parts of the fish that are important to tradition to the elders and the young. I've been uh, working through uh, many different venues because I was worried about changes that we were seeing with oil and gas development. Increased flight activity can disrupt our ability to harvest the caribou. When you have 1,900 flights that are coming out of a a runway and uh, they promised you there would only be 20, that's a big impact. but there's also other things that happen, such as flaring of the gas related to oil and gas production that can increase respiratory illness. And I got very active in our local community meetings asking questions about that concern because we would see 20 or more flares in one night. Wow. But many people would have trouble breathing. So now you were working as a community health aide right there in the Prudhoe Bay area where there is so much oil and gas work going on, right? Yes, when I started, when I moved 
to the village, we were 60 miles away from oil and gas development. But as I continued to live and work in the village, oil and gas development got closer, increased in concentration to where now the village is completely surrounded on all four sides with oil and gas development. Over, over a thousand wells have been drilled. Wow. And this 1,900 flights, are are these are all related to oil and gas, or are these uh, workers? Who, why are there so many flights going into there? All of the process. There's a process in which they do research and monitoring. There's a process of regulatory enforcement. There's a process of exploration, and then there's a process of construction. So with all of those various factors, you have um, many man-hour contacts. In the Arctic, it requires uh, a lot of flight coming in and out. Well, that is just amazing. I mean, I, I think the assumption that everyone has is you've got pipelines and tankers that are moving oil and gas. They're not actually moved by plane. That would be too costly, right? Well, it, there are various parts of every phase in which planes and helicopters and uh, the um, van vehicles and uh, trucks and um, generators and drill rigs that are used in the various stages of the process. So um, in the Arctic, we've tried to protect our traditional way of life and restrict activities such as um, requiring roadless development so that migratory routes of the caribou are protected. But mm. not always do you have the enforcement tools on papers that say that the importance of tradition and culture are protected. Mm. So you must engage in the process and continue to communicate about what's happening in our lands and waters because the documents said they would bring 20 flights in June and July when we're doing our most active harvesting. But what we got was 1,900. Wow, that is that. That's amazing. I mean, that's that's actually surprising to me. Having recently been uh, in Alaska, I was not up in in your neck of the woods, if you uh, want to use that terminology. But uh, I know there's not a lot of woods uh, as as we speak. But but the point is, I mean, I'm just that's astounding, really. Add in add in the number of personnel. They told us that they would bring 200, but we got 1,200. They told us that they would put 14 acres of gravel placement, but when they found out they had champagne oil, they have over 500 acres of gravel placement with the first four, first four development sites associated with one development site. But you go through the various websites and you can see how much land is at risk for this oil and gas development process because the number of leases that have been told, there's a lot more work that we all must engage in. Mm. Because I'm hoping by engaging with others and expressing the importance of our tradition and culture and the health of our people that we're able to have some of our special areas protected from the oil and gas development process. Now, this is a perfect time to step back just a little bit because you're a Nupiat, right, by, by background. Yes. And yet you have a very interesting family background. You and I had a chance to talk some about that prior to the show. Tell us a little bit about your mother and how you've gotten involved as a family in so many things in Alaska that really bring, I think, a unique perspective to what you're experiencing. As a community health aide, I had to, um, uh, I'll start back further than that. As uh, my mom, her parents traveled by dog sled and they met some of the ships that came to the Arctic related to whaling and her parents contracted uh, an illness and died from the epidemic. She was sent to 
um, Tacoma, Washington, to be treated with TB, uh, and she was down there for many years. She was able to learn the English language, and she was able to translate into many native languages. As she was down there, the nurses and stuff knew that her parents had died, and they didn't want her to come back, but she had seven siblings that were waiting for her to come back. And when mm -hmm. she found out she didn't have TB after many years, she fought to come back home and uh, was able to do so. When she came back home, she was selected to teach the English language to the village of Atkasuk, and she almost eradicated the Inupiat speakers in that village. She was also selected or encouraged to become a licensed practical nurse, and she was sent back to Tacoma, Washington, to receive training. But she didn't get to go back to the North Slope. She was sent to Fairbanks, where there were many villages that were engaged in needing health care, and the highest need with her level of expertise. So that's where she met my dad, had all of us, and then met my stepfather. Mm-hmm. So you have these family roots in Fairbanks and then kind of extends into the lower 48 with your mother's education and treatment. But you ended up uh, ultimately in the farthest northern portion of Alaska in, in Barrow. Tell us a little bit about uh, that transition. Um, Barrow is where my mom was born and raised. It's where her, most of her siblings were at and all of our extended family members. It's where our family wing crew is at and um, I went through a change in my life and um, decided it was time to move into Barrow and um, it's been a very important because there's so much about our tradition and culture that you don't get exposed to when you're living in other places away from your traditional foods. Hmm. So tell us a little bit, we've been speaking some in general about the impact of oil and gas in particular development there in Alaska and how it's impacted tribal cultural practices. Tell us practically what that looks like. What kind of impact on the fish, on the wildlife, have you seen just in your lifetime? Uh, the reality is we could probably talk about the use changes for decades, but mm -hmm. uh, briefly, um, you have increased changes that happen because the Arctic is a very remote area and there aren't very many people, but we have the Serengeti of the north, as some people call it, with the tremendous herds that are in the Arctic for renewal. They travel up to the um, coastal plain for their birth of the new generation. The important biological growth of the vegetation is so important for the caribou to be in those areas during the 24-hour daylight when the rapid growth is there to give the animals the important nutritious values of these foods during that early growth. If animals aren't able to get across the rivers before the meltdown, then it changes whether or not their survivability is at the highest productive rate. Mm. We also have changes with ice conditions, and so that um, having uh, rain in November, it can affect whether or not you get out to the fish net and are able to harvest because we're supposed to be freezing in September. And when you have the changes that we're having, it can cause the ice to become very unstable and treacherous. I broke through a few years ago. Uh, the same day I broke through, seven other hunters broke through. But it was also the first time in my lifetime that I ever heard of two elders breaking through the ice. Mm. You might have the young, daring hunters and young fishermen get out and push their chances, but you never have 
the elders take those kind of risks. But what is normal in our environment is changing. Mm -hmm. The lake freeze is affecting whether or not the ice is occurring in the depth and the uh, necessary for us to be able to go out and do our spring whaling, whether or not the ice is thick enough to be able to hold the weight of the multi-ton whale that we must bring up. Mm-hmm. But it's important for us to harvest the whale because we share it with the whole village, and it helps us all in survivability. We feed the village first for the year before we take on other activities. Mm. And But when you have seismic activities that are going on during this time, you have uh, loud noises that are there. It can cause the whale to move further offshore. I see. It causes the whale hunters to go out into deeper waters that are much more dangerous, and it causes the risks to the whaling crew as well as whether or not we're going to successfully land the whale to be able to harvest it, or whether or not the whale will be landed in a harvestable condition. These are huge animals. Mm-hmm. You have to tow it 20 miles like we did when they worked at Camden Bay. The whale is too hot. It didn't stay strong, and it, we lost some of the harvest. Mm. Um, we had to cut another one go. But we also have um, development that occurs to build up infrastructure, gravel islands that are made, causeways put into these gravel uh, development areas are supposed to be protecting fish passage. But if they're not maintaining these causeways where the fish are supposed to swim in their migratory patterns and they fill up with gravel because there's now a man-made island that is causing a, a source of gravel to come into the causeway, mm. you can affect the ability to harvest the fish that you depend on, as it did with us in the Arctic Cisco. Eight years of local community meetings, and we're still talking about the importance, but Western science took many years to catch up. We told them there was something impacting the fish, whether or not they got to it. But you also have increased flight activity. So you have your hunters that hunted near the village. 120 houses harvested caribou within a three-mile radius of the village to where you have 1,900 flights, and all of a sudden now there's only three houses in the whole village that hang caribou to dry. These are real serious impacts. It affects our ability to feed our families, to educate our children, to give us the nourishment that we need to be able to buy oranges in my store. You're looking at $7 maybe for two. Wow, wow. For a gallon of milk, it's like $15. It's a very different life. Well, Rosemary, we've got a lot more to talk about, uh, some amazing challenges, and I know you and others are trying to make a big difference, and you already are. We're going to come back with American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. More amazing insights from Alaska, things that can make a difference wherever you are. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. My name is Florence A.Q. For lunch today, I had grilled chicken and squash. I am Zuni Indian, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. My name is D. Dakota Denesosi. I turned the TV off and took my nieces and nephews for a walk. We saw two jackrabbits, an eagle, and zero cartoons. I'm from the Dene Nation, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. 
Science has proven that if we lose as little as 10 pounds by walking briskly for 30 minutes, five days a week, and make healthier food choices, we can prevent diabetes. My name is Barbara Akisakpuk Curtis. I'm losing weight and being more active. I am Alaskan Inupak Eskimo, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. For more information on how to prevent diabetes, talk to your health care provider. For free materials, call the National Diabetes Education Program at 1-800-438-5383 and ask for the power to prevent diabetes. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Meryl Streep. Over the years, I have played some characters you could call controlling, but the truth is there's so much in life we can't control. But here's something we can colorectal cancer. It affects men and women, and it's the second leading cancer killer in the U.S., which is astounding, considering it's almost entirely preventable. Here's how. Most colon cancers start as polyps, and screening helps find polyps so they can be removed before they even turn into cancer. Screening also finds this cancer early, when treatment works best. For me, screening was simple and quick. It was no big deal, except for the huge sense of relief you feel afterwards. There are several tests that you can choose from. If you're 50 or older, you should talk to your doctor. Decide which one's right for you. Take control. Do everything you can to prevent colon cancer. Screening saves lives. It could really save your life. For more information, call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. We're speaking about topics of environmental health and how it impacts people throughout Indian country. We've got an amazing guest, Rosemary Atongarok. She's in Nupiat. She's been a long-term tribal leader, background as a physician's assistant. She's been involved in the political process. She has now been tapped to uh, be involved with a environmental health think tank, a national think tank. And Rosemary, tell us a little bit about this group and just how you got to be involved. I started working with the Center for Disease Control maybe about 15 years ago. They came to talk to us about fish contaminants. Unfortunately, they didn't talk to us about how we use the fish, the narrow time windows of when we consume the fish, and they didn't know that when we consume the fish, we might have an elder who cooks up six fish, and you have six livers sitting on the table. Mm. And the elder will give the first bite to the granddaughters or the grandchildren, and that renews the continuation of the desires for a traditional food. But when you have six livers on the table and you're talking about fish contaminants, for me that gives a large alarm Mm. because liver is likely to have the highest concentration of contaminants. And then you have two of our most sensitive populations, our elders and our babies, that are consuming these livers. Mm -hmm. And you wonder about the health of how it's going to affect them. And you must engage in our local community meetings to try to affect this. So through the years, others have heard about my effort to engage and communicate about the importance of tradition and culture and health, life, and safety of our people. And when the process became to start a national tribal environmental health think tank, I said, 
Yes, I think I will be interested working through environmental control to protect us all mm-hmm. is something that's very important. We share animals with every continent that come to the Arctic for renewal. Sorry about that helicopter. No, no. Uh, I mean, what you, you shared with us earlier in the show, Rosemary, just a lot of the noise. Now, I know you're not, uh, I'm not interviewing you from Prudhoe Bay or from Barrow. You're actually, are you in Fairbanks right now as we're doing the show? I'm in Anchorage where my mom is living right now. She's got some health conditions, so we keep her in Anchorage right now. Okay, but uh, it's uh, the the amount of travel in Alaska by plane, I guess percentage-wise, is astounding because you don't have roads that run between your, your major cities, right? Right. Uh, we have our frozen river roads in near-shore environments that we will create our traditional travel patterns, but we don't have gravel roads connecting our communities together in most of Alaska. So basically right now we're getting a, a real taste for what many people in even Alaskan villages here, well, maybe not, not in small villages, uh, they're not hearing large planes, but there are planes that travel basically to every village, at least the smaller planes do, right? Right. So the, the background noise is definitely adding to the ambiance of the show. You don't have to uh, apologize. We know that you're in Alaska, and we know what you're dealing with up there. But let's come back to the, the Center, Centers for Disease Control. They were the ones that actually pulled together this think tank. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, they chose about 15 tribal people throughout the nation, people that have been engaged in environmental issues or are actually engaged in health issues related to uh, failures to protect the environment, um, and they started a discussion process. Uh, we knew as tribal people trying to work with, trying to address concerns related to health and the environment was very difficult. Resources for tribes are nearly non-existent. And trying to get resources for tribal people to become educated in the CDC process was very difficult. So we started a process where we looked at ways to engage the agency, working with tribal people in a good way, working with tribes to initiate communications on environmental health issues. We created uh, documents to guide the process, creating pillars on ways to work in a good way, um, creating the resources of internships and scholarships to help tribal people uh, go to work within the agency as well as working within the agency to create a standard of way to work with tribes if tribes had an environmental health concern that they wanted to address. We also looked at all of the environmental health issues that are out there and prioritized them and helped the agency to focus on the issues that tribes uh, could initiate and engage on some of the issues. We have so many issues throughout our nation that uh, we could rapidly run out of resources with over 500 tribes that need these resources. So trying to prioritize some of that was important to do. Well, I know folks that are listening and have a background in policy or in tribal leadership are very interested in some of the structural things that your group has been setting up, the opportunities you've been making for tribes to have more of a voice in the national dialogue when it comes to environmental health. But I know many times when we're speaking about I would say really 
groundbreaking things. It's hard for the average listener to wrap their arms around it without hearing some stories, some people that have been impacted, some things that have brought encouragement to you, Rosemary, and other tribal people who've been sitting around the table. Do you have some stories for things that you've seen already happening as a result of the think tank? Uh, for me, it, it gave me tools and resources. I travel out to our village and I encourage the uh, education of our youth. I participate in our schools. But being able to come in with hard uh, documents that show resources to apply for scholarships to go into the health field and having um, key context identified uh, to help people to apply within the agency and to uh, get into opportunities of receiving specialized training with internships to help us expand our ability to communicate more effectively and leverage resources for the issues that we have to face. Um, working with uh, many different partners that have engaged in the process to expand the understanding and the need to uh, garnish additional resources as well as to engage others to expand the resources to help protect the Arctic and the environment that we're dealing with is so very important. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, there's so much more that we have to do, but it's a national process that must occur. So it's really important that we get others within the nation to be aware of these issues. One of the things that I hear coming through loud and clear, Rosemary, is you've got, as a group, the National Environmental Health Think Tank has really been opening doors for Native youth, Native people, maybe already in midlife or, or later, to get additional training in the environmental health arena. Am I hearing you right? Uh, there's uh, opportunities to uh, engage within the agency as well as now we're working with the American Public Health Association um, so there's uh, ways that we're expanding resources as well as in this last conference we leveraged to get some environmental health uh, training for hazardous response as well as uh, emergency preparedness and uh, so many different variables of ways that we need to engage to try to look at environmental health issues. So let's talk to someone right now who's listening to the show. This is someone, maybe they're a Native American youth, Maybe there's someone who's uh, lived their whole life on a reservation and they're wondering about getting some further education. They're concerned about some of the environmental health challenges, whether they're listening on one of our stations in Alaska or whether they're on the Navajo Nation or whether they're one of the USED tribes out in the eastern part of the, uh, the U.S. They're listening. They're saying, well, I mean, this sounds exciting. Who can I contact? I mean, how do I get more information if I want to pursue this vision of getting more training? Uh, all of our tribes have tribal offices, and going in and talking to your tribal office and talking to your tribal leader is your first step. Getting the support within your individual tribe to look at furthering your education and helping to identify various educational opportunities, whether it's a direct application into an environmental health college program or if it's an internship that allows a person to become educated within the agency in the many different realms of environmental health. Um, uh, working with the tribal leaders, you can also work with the National Tribal 
environmental health think tank. There is a website with the American Public Health Association that you can uh, look up the contact of the people that are working on the think tank, and you can contact us through email or phone, and we can help share some of the information that we've been engaged and to hope uh, spur some ideas of ways that they can engage. But every tribe has concerns on their lands and waters that are important to the health of their people and their future generations and looking at what's important in their lands and waters and recognizing there are tribes all over the world that are facing similar issues and finding ways to collaborate and partner with other organizations and agencies to build a process for us to look at the complex issues that we must deal with. We are going to have to step away uh, once more, but don't uh, go away. Rosemary is going to be giving us some of that contact information if you want to get more information about the National Environmental Health Think Tank. We've also got some amazing stories coming to us from Alaska about other environmental impacts, things that really, I think, can open your eyes and can challenge you as far as some opportunities that may exist right in your own backyard whether you're in an environment like Alaska or very different. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Rosemary is staying by. I will be doing the same. You join us, please. We will be back in just a couple of minutes. Stay tuned. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. I'm Karen, and two very important people in my life, my husband and my father, have been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, or AFib, is a type of irregular heartbeat. People with AFib are five times more likely to have a stroke than people without AFib. Talk with a healthcare professional today about your risk and learn how to manage AFib to prevent a stroke. Visit stroke.org AFib to learn more. My name is Mira Batra. I have been in this country 32 years, and this is how I live united. America has always been the land of promise, and in my community, many families have come for a better life. Coming from another culture myself, I know the desire to become part of a community, to feel at home, and to gain the tools for our children and families to succeed. So I advocate for these families with United Way. United Way empowers them to look beyond their histories and to see what opportunities are available. We help them get involved with their kids' schools, network within the community, and when we do, we unite them. We make the community stronger. What I do is something I wish someone had done for me, and I am so grateful I am able to. My name is Meera Batra. I help families see opportunities and succeed. I don't just wear the shirt. I live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Did you know that 63% of homes contain allergens from cockroaches? And that mice spread potent asthma triggers found in 82% of homes? It's true. Common household pests are major offenders on the list of indoor allergens. Learn what you can do to help your family breathe easier. Visit PestWorld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association and the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me, a Native American leader, an Alaskan uh, tribal leader who has been a community health aide. She's a physician's assistant by training. She has been involved in the political sector. She is now a member of the National Environmental Health Think Tank convened by the Centers for Disease Control. Her name is Rosemary Atungarok. Rosemary, it's uh, been great to have you on the show. Thank you so very much. We have so much that we share with the Arctic and throughout every continent. When you look at your window and you see the birds that are down in your area, remember they come to us for renewal and we send them back to you for the winter. No, I appreciate that vision and that connection that you uh, that you have with traditional people throughout uh, really the world uh, to some extent. Rosemary, we've been speaking about some ways that people can engage in this whole area of the environment, especially if they have a First Nations background. You've been part of some very exciting things that have been happening. Let's talk a little bit about some of what's been going on with the National Institutes of Health. My understanding is they recently had a traditional ecological knowledge workshop. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was? One of the important things is that there's many different people that are engaged in doing research on health issues. But engaging in research on health issues, you can receive information. But engaging with tribal people to look at tribal health issues, you really need to engage with the tribe. Mm -hmm. So we, we realized long ago that people are doing research, but if we don't work with the researchers, then the important questions that we have and concerns that we are asking about are not going to get researched. And so we have to speak with all who come to the Arctic and are going to engage in the process of being researched. We have to talk about the importance of our tradition and culture, and we have to bring it into every layer of the meeting processes that are before us. With the National Institute of Health, we worked with our think tank process and engaged partners. Uh, National Institute of Health is one. National Institute of Environmental Sciences was another, as well as many different other um, agencies, as well as non-government organizations um, were engaged. One um, participant, Simma Finn, works with the National Institute of Health, and she recognized what we were bringing into our process and asked to work on a process to uh, receive some funding to bring tribal leaders together to talk on this very important issue. And by bringing in uh, people with tribal backgrounds that have been engaged in working on um, environmental health issues as well as tribal issues, we were able to um, bring in some important discussions and foresight and understanding about tribal health issues and talk with people who are engaged in doing the research, informing them that tribes are still here throughout our nation. And many of our tribes are still engaged in all of our important traditional cultural practices. But in Alaska, it's really important to understand the way that we're consuming our animals are very different than it is being done in other areas. And knowing how 
we consume our animals in the short times that we consume them and the various parts of the animals that we consume is very important when we're looking at health risk assessments that are looking at areas that can get changed in our lands and waters. But if we're not looking at the way that our tribal people are using our lands and waters and understanding the animals that we're consuming, the real risk factors may not be understood. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have a full assessment of all the areas that have already been exposed to oil and gas development in the North Slope that looks at what the real tribal risks are, looking at the foods that the tribe eats and all the various ways that we eat them in all the various areas that we harvest them. And we have areas that have known environmental violations, but we don't have an assessment of those areas as well as a plan for restoring them. Mm -hmm. But we want to be proactive in this process to engage in our local community meetings, bringing the importance of our tradition and culture into the process for the importance of the life, health, and safety of our future generations. We want to be protective of the process and making sure that we are getting the assessments that are going to look at the important sentinel markers that may happen to affect the health of our people. And if there are problems that are identified, we're reacting to them and protecting the future generations. And we want to be preventative. We want to make sure that the process is done in an environmentally safe way that we're going to do everything in our power to protect our lands and waters for our future generations. Mm-hmm. Because if our whale lives to be 100 years and it must travel through many different zones to migrate back to us, and we have a pre-authorization for dispersants, which is a chemical toxic substance that could be used in an oil spill, we have to monitor every place that our whale goes where these things may be at to assess the health of these animals that may live to be 100 years to make sure they're safe for mm-hmm. our pregnant women and our elders and children. You know, what made some of this so practical to me is just how you've illustrated earlier in this show some of those unique tribal cultural things that uh, that impact these uh, these risks. For example, when you were sharing with us about how the liver of the fish was something that was especially eaten by the young children and the elders, tell us a little bit about how uh, your people there in uh, in the Arctic have used the caribou. What is uh, someone who says, well, yeah, I eat meat too, and why would that be any different whether you eat caribou or whether you eat beef? Uh, t- tell, tell a little bit about some of the tribal practices around the caribou that make a difference. And by the way, Rosemary, just since I put that in the first person, uh, I will just disclose I am a, a vegetarian. I know it's not an option, for most of the folks up in the Arctic, you have pretty limited food options, like you said about you know the cost of oranges up there. But uh, tell us a little bit about the caribou and how those are used. For us, we're able to harvest the caribou throughout most of the year if the animals stay near our community and we're able to harvest them as our traditional ways have occurred. We harvest the animal. The first time a young hunter harvests his first catch, is really important. It's a recognition process in the community of a new provider for the village. And the the youth is um, celebrated with a feast in which the whole village is invited to the house in which they harvested the animal. And the animal is completely cooked up or given completely away to an elder of special recognition or their choice. Um, Every part of the animal is used. We eat the animal as well as we use 
bone through various tools such as the handle for our drums, the sinew we collect to used in our skin sewing for the sealskin boats that we use for our whaling. The hooves are used and can be melted down into use into a glue to use in our crafting and tool making. Um, all the parts of the animal are so very important, but it's the sharing of these animals throughout the year. When a young hunter walks into an elder's house and brings a fresh meal to the elder, the recognition they receive in sharing the stories of the generations of hunting from the elder, of past usage in lands and waters, and the stories of great-grandpa Joe, Uncle Joe, and now cousin Joe hunting in the lands and waters as the generations have done, sharing the successful harvest is so very important. But it's also bringing in the animal and teaching the next generation and how to properly cut up the animal, how to collect the sinew, and how to prepare the skins to use in the various ways that we need them to make clothing or to use for bedding when we're out camping in our lands and waters in the Arctic conditions that we live in. Um, there's so much more than just a meal that comes from the caribou. Mm-hmm. It's a way of life that goes throughout the generations. Now, one of the things that immediately when we speak about toxins and contaminants that we already raised the, the question about when it comes to fish are the, the organs. What about the organs of the caribou? Are those held in special esteem as well? For example, the brain, kidney, livers, things like this. Yes, the, the kidneys, the young hunter is taught to eat the kidney fresh. As soon as they harvest it, they uh, take it right out of the animal while it's still warm and eat it right there on the ice or the tundra wherever they have harvested it. It's a special, uh, very uh, nutritious organ that gives a lot of energy. We may have been out harvesting, hunting, and traveling on the lands and waters for hours and days to get this caribou, and then it's all the physical manual labor to, of the traveling as well as the butchering and the carrying of the animal back to the boat to travel back to the homes. But eating the kidney helps to give you the valuable nutrients that you need to help your body restore the damage of trying to work so hard for so many hours to get out to harvest the animal, and it gives you the vital energy to continue um, cutting up the animal after you've already been engaged for hours and hours in the effort to harvest. And then the the liver and the heart are shared with special meals. We have them. We can use the covering of the organ to create various items such as the skins for um, uh, the the uh, you can make bags and various things as well as for the drums, as well as the uh, brain is used to help uh, prepare the skin, and it gives it a protective waterproofing, mm. as well as um, it uh, helps to soften and make the skin supple for skin sewing. Um, but all of the animals are used in uh, everything that we need to do as far as our way of life, but it's also a sharing through the generations. So if I understand correctly, in addition to the tribal significance, you know, the connection, the intergenerational connection that obviously emerges, you know, with the caribou, when someone's looking from a different cultural perspective, if someone has never lived in the Arctic, if they've never, you know, utilized the whole animal, if they're just thinking of eating the meat of the caribou, when they look at certain environmental health concerns, they may not be sensitive 
to assessing maybe a, the toxin burden in the kidney of a caribou because they would think, well, that's really not something that's commonly eaten. Are these some of the problems that you deal with when you uh, work with people who are not from a tribal background? Yes, it's always about informing them about um, the various important ways that we use the animals in the different parts that we eat, but it's also looking at the research that's being done, how they're collecting their data sets, and looking at every one of their data sets because the way that they incorporate one data set versus weaning out others can greatly in- impact the interpretation of a report that's being done. Mm-hmm. But also if there are specific things that are being done, such as looking at air quality, and you shut down the air monitoring station when you're having the greatest number of flares, that can greatly impact whether or not mm-hmm. you understand the data that's being received. The average data for only seven days, you have a very small number. You have a very different number than if you average it for 30 days. And so it's important for us to take ownership for the research that's being done because we need to take ownership for this research for the generation to come. Excellent, Rosemary. We are stepping away once more. We have one more break. We're going to come back with our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I did promise you some contact information if you're interested in environmental health opportunities for your tribe or for you individually. Rosemary will have those for us when we come back. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Final segment coming up, environmental health issues in Indian country, especially from an Alaskan perspective. Don't go away. We will be right back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. What I say, you already know, but you don't believe. You won't accept, you don't conceive. When you're inside your car, you feel safest of all. Are you safe? Are you? Two tons of sheet metal in your hands. Two tons don't run on autopilot. You have a mission. It's no collision. Hold the phone. Don't text. You're angling to be next. Oh, you've done it before. What's the harm? Just this once, there's no alarm. Got your hands on the wheel? No big deal. Brothers and sisters, you won't see it coming. You're off the road. Your life explodes. It's not worth it. Don't do it. You only think there's nothing to it. Put it down, hang up, pay attention to highway action. Behind the wheel, there is no such thing as a small distraction. Join the conversation at DecideToDrive.org, a public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, who would rather help keep your bones strong than put them back together. We are here to say a word about cancer. When you talk to someone who has been diagnosed with cancer, be positive. Be supportive. That's it. Stop right there. Don't start telling them about your Uncle Vern. Or the next-door neighbor. Don't be grim. Try not to disappear, either. Don't cross to the other side of the street. Don't stop calling. Don't cry. Don't ever say, you're living my worst nightmare. You know who you are. Here's the important part. Be positive. Be positive. Se positivo. Say these words. You will do great. Keep calling. Check in. Be a friend. Or be a new friend. Be a supportive. Positive friend. Smile. Try not to be afraid. Or act afraid. Fear is not useful. Be a funny, hopeful human being. If you come across cancer, let it transform you into your most positive self. And inspire. Urge. Fortify. Rally. Encourage someone to do great. This message brought to you by Cancer Survivors. 
For more information, to hear stories or share your own, visit DoGreatCampaign.com. Do great. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose with an exciting visit, really, very exciting to me, with Rosemary, Rosemary Atungarok, uh, Inupiat, long-term tribal leader from Alaska. She's been sharing with us insights into environmental health issues. She is not just someone who is active in Alaska with environmental health issues, but she's been called upon by leading groups like the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health as they've been trying to bring greater tribal health competency to researchers throughout the research community. Rosemary, we promised some contact information for those who wanted to learn more about the Environmental Health Think Tank or get personalized information. How do they do that? Uh, you can go on to the www.apha.org website, and they have a box to do a search and just enter the National and Tribal Environmental Think Tank, and it'll bring you to the section, and you can look at the individuals that are engaged in the think tank process, their contact information, send us an email, see some of the information on the work that we've been doing, the documents that we have, and tools and resources that we've developed. Excellent. So the American Public Health Association, this is uh, perhaps, at least to my knowledge, it is the largest public health and preventive medicine society in the world. Uh, American Public Health Association, their initials are APHA, so their website, APHA.org, if you go there and then put in, is the official name, is it the National Tribal Environmental Health Think Tank, or is it the National Environmental Health Think Tank? What is the correct? It's a, it started out as the National Tribal Environmental Health Think Tank. This year, we're going to take a public health view, so I think the acronym will lose the t- tribe. Okay, because for some reason, I had kind of had had heard both, so National Environmental Health Think Tank and National Tribal Environmental Health Think Tank. So there's some reason why I may have heard it with and without the tribal connection, right? Right. Oh. The, the first few years that we started the process did have a tribal focus, but this year they've asked us to take a public health focus. Very good. And if someone says, well, I went to the APHA website I couldn't find anything. You do have a personal contact for us at APHA, right? Yes, Ivana Castellano at APHA.org. It's I-V-A-N-A dot C-A-S-T-E-L-L-A-N-O-S at APHA.org. Okay, let me make sure that I've got that right, Rosemary. Uh, Ivana, or... Ivana, however she pronounces it, I-V-A-N-A, and then there's a dot, and then her last name, Castellanos, C-A-S-T-E-L-L-A-N-O-S? Yes. At APHA.org. Yes. Okay. And just for those who are listening, regardless of what station you're listening on, uh, throughout our many stations, some 150 stations, carry American Indian Living, if you call the station... All of our major networks each week 
get programming information, and we have information like this. So we'll have Ivana's contact information. We'll have the APHA information. So if you weren't able to jot that down quickly as you've been listening to Rosemary, that uh, should be available with your, uh, your local affiliate. So let's go back, Rosemary, to our dialogue. You've been sharing with us some fascinating insights into Alaska and some of the environmental health challenges. One of them, I, I have a question for you because you were telling us about some of the challenges with hunting and fishing, whaling uh, there in the Arctic. A lot of us listening to that were hearing impact of global warming, but I was wondering if you feel as a tribal leader and as someone who's been living in that environment, do you feel that some of the changes in ice structure and all are not just effects of global uh, changes, but they're due to some of the local issues that are happening there with the oil and gas production? Definitely. We have a process called the National Energy Policy Act, and that has created a focus in our lands and waters because we live where oil and gas is. And so when you're having uh, oil and gas development that is going through hundreds of thousands of acres of the Arctic from the Brooks Range out into the ocean 200 miles, there's a lot of change that can happen with infrastructure development and all the other variables that go into changing our lands and waters. So when you're putting up a gravel island in the ocean, you can impact the fish passage that is away from the island because of the changes that can occur with putting in gravel to an area that didn't have gravel before. Mm -hmm. But you also can have uh, real serious impacts to people's health when you cause tremendous changes in our lines and waters. But when you're dealing with productivity of the oil and gas development process and there's flaring of the gas, that I think is one of the biggest concerns that I have um, because I saw the changes to our small village and the number of people who had trouble breathing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then if you have an adverse event such as a blowout, the whole village can have trouble in breathing within a couple hours. Wow. And that's a much more serious process that we have to prepare for with efforts to develop oil and gas. Now, for those who are not familiar with the oil and gas development uh, process up there in the Arctic, you've been talking with us about these gravel islands. So these are islands where they're building things that might be involved in extracting oil and gas or refining it, or, or what all are they doing up there on these islands? Uh, it depends on where that's occurring, but you could build a gravel island in the near shore, offshore environment, or you could do gravel placement for a pad on the tundra in which you're putting hundreds of acres of gravel down to build up the infrastructure to put on the many different buildings associated with um, constructing the drill site, uh, personnel housing, uh, drill rigs, uh, equipment, um, buildings for produ production, buildings for storage, buildings for the equipment and the maintenance and the process. It just goes on and on. You've mm -hmm. got all the power and electricity, the water sewer processes that have to go on for the personnel that are going to live there. It's astronomical the amount of man-hour contacts that go into the oil and gas development process. 
Now, what, what came through pretty clearly to me when we spoke about the caribou is that because of all the activity, this has kept the caribou away from these sites and including away from traditional villages that may be in those vicinities. Have, have there been other major impacts on caribou migration from uh, the oil and gas work there in the Arctic? Uh, the, the oil and gas industry can do a study and they will look and see that there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of animals. But there are also stresses and strains that can occur to our animals. Right now, we are facing caribou hunting restrictions for the first time north of the Burke's Range. In the lower part of Alaska, where there are increased populations in larger cities, caribou hunting regulations have been in effect in reducing the ability of tribal people from harvesting in our land and waters. Mm. As we went further north, there were less people, and our protective measures were working more effectively. However, you add the climate strain change, you add in the tremendous amount of stress and strain from having oil and gas development, exploration, and all of those activities and research and monitoring associated with that, and then you add in the changes that are occurring, you have declines in the herds to where we're now facing hunting restrictions for the first time. Wow. We also have other activities such as fly-in hunters that can impact migratory routes, but it's all of these cumulative effects that put a stress and strain on whether or not our villages are able to harvest the animals that we need to feed our families. Mm -hmm. Rosemary, you have been uh, so gracious to pull away from your busy schedule and share with us insights into environmental health, uh, and especially as it impacts tribal people in Alaska and especially in the Arctic. Our time is just about out. Do you have any final messages for us as we're closing out today's edition of American Indian Living? We have a brand-new hospital in the Arctic at Barrow. Uh, we need to have skilled people go out and receive education and health. There are tribes throughout our nation that need help in providing health care. If you want to learn more about our process, reach out to us. We're on the website. We're more than willing to communicate. The better way we all work to protect our land and water, the future of all of our health is going to improve. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rosemary. Again, that website is at the APHA.org. Is that the best place to go? Yes, it is. And I also have some additional information at alaskawild.org, and people can reach me through that process also. Okay, so if you want to connect, uh, connect with Rosemary personally, alaskawild.org. Have I got that right? Yes. Rosemary, thank you so much. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully this window on tribal knowledge, tribal experience in Alaska has inspired you with some of the opportunities and challenges of environmental health in your own community. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.